You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Okay, hey guy, we, we started just last week. So if you're here for the first time, it's, uh, you're, we're still really right at the beginning. Uh, hey guys, the shortest book in the Old Testament. And it's about the, the Jews who returned from captivity in Babylon. They'd been there 70 years in captivity after the Babylonian Empire had essentially crushed uh, the, the, the kingdom of Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And now the Jews were, in essence, repatriating the country, resettling it, rebuilding it. And last week we looked at the first 11 verses and, and we learned that, that the people had, uh, had gotten their priorities confused and they, they had built their own homes, uh, and that's okay, but they had built their own homes at the expense of not building uh, or rebuilding the temple. And, and, and the Lord, through his prophet, Haggai, uh, told the people to, to get busy and, and begin rebuilding the temple. Uh, and we stopped there. And now this, today we're going to see how the people responded to that message from God that Haggai had delivered. Our text begins where we left off. Uh, Haggai chapter 1, verse 12, uh, and then going down through chapter 2, verse 9. I've, we, we've had it printed for you in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you, and you can follow along there. Um, I'm going to ask you, if you're able, uh, to, to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. Uh, we do this as a biblical sign of respect uh, for the speaker, and that's not me. Uh, the, the, I'm the reader. The speaker uh, is the Lord. The, the, these are his words. Okay, Haggai, one beginning at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people uh, with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O jo Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, 
all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we open up this word, let's start by asking the Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, help us, please, by your Spirit. As we hear your word, help us to process it and to apply it so that we would work with you rather than against you. And in so doing, find true satisfaction, true joy, and true purpose. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start by asking a question, and I, this question is, is not original, I'm basing it on a question that, uh, that God asked Jeremiah, another one of his prophets, and the question is this, do you want to shuffle along with the crowd or do you want to run with the horses? Here's how my, one of my favorite Christian writers, Eugene Peterson, reimagined that conversation between God and Jeremiah, which might as well be a conversation between you and God. This is God speaking to Jer Jeremiah. Life is difficult. Are you going to quit at the first wave of opposition? Are you going to retreat when you find that there is more to life than finding three meals a day and a dry place to sleep at night? Are you going to run home the minute you find that the mass of men and women are more interested in keeping their feet warm than in living at risk to the glory of God? Are you going to live cautiously or courageously? I called you to live at your best, to pursue righteousness, to sustain a drive toward excellence. It's easier, I know, to be neurotic. It's easier to be parasitic. It's easier to relax into the embracing arms of the average. Easier but not better. Easier but not more significant. Easier but not more fulfilling. I called you to a life of purpose far beyond what you think yourself capable of living, and I promised you adequate strength to fulfill your destiny. Powerful words. And a reminder, Christian friends, that a life of excellence, a life of significance, a life of fulfilling purpose, a life that has 
true weight and meaning is ultimately a life lived by faith in Jesus Christ. Now that runs against the grain of our culture, contrary to what you will see and hear out there, uh, a life invested in God rather than in yourself, your comfort, your reputation, and your achievement is truly a life of lasting glory. I know it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to the way the world works. It's counterintuitive to the way the world thinks. It's counterintuitive to the way we are pushed to think. But Jesus said it, and he said it in various different ways. You have to lose your life in order to really find it. You have to lose it as you get caught up in the purposes of, of, of our good God. Caught up in his mission. Haggai, as we talked about, is about re rebuilding the temple, but it's really not about a building project. It's not about bricks and mortar. Uh, the temple always, always was a pointer to Jesus. And, it, and the temple was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. It was, it was made obsolete and because it was fulfilled in Jesus. That's how God is now present with his people. That's how God mediates his presence to his people. It's now through Jesus, right? And though Jesus' body is, been ascend is ascended and he is in heaven right now bodily, he, he has a body on earth and, and, and you are called, like the Israelites were called to build their temple, we are called to build and expand this temple, and it's his church. That's Christ's body uh, on the planet. Each of you believers is right now a living stone in that living temple that is Christ's body. And our call is to, is, to, is to build that, to expand that, to mediate God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's blessings to a world that is so desperate for those things but doesn't know it. There are, re there are realities, though, that stand in the way of us doing that that stand in your way, my way, of lining up our lives with God and his plan. And on the other hand, there are realities that empower us to live our lives in line uh, with God, to live our lives by faith uh, in the Lord. So what we're gonna do today is, is unpack these verses we read that reflect the, the response of God's people. And we're gonna look at, at two things. First, two, two realities that stand in your way of living by faith in Jesus. Two obstacles. It was an obstacle, it, they were obstacles for the Israelites, they're obstacles for you and for me today. And then we're going to look at four realities, on the other hand, that enable us to live a life of faith in Jesus, to live out and fulfill your God-given destiny to be uh, that mediator, that ambassador who, 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 who passes on the blessing and the grace 
and the forgiveness, the welcome, the adoption, and the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. So the two barriers to living by faith and then the four power sources for living by faith. That's, that's in essence, the outline. So first, the, the two barriers to living by faith in Jesus. Of course, there are more than two barriers. We know that. But, but these are the two that we see in Haggai. The first one actually isn't in the text we read, but it's the, it's the context for the text we read. It really comes from what we saw last week in the first 11 verses, right? The people had built their own paneled homes at the expense of building the temple. And what that demonstrates, as we talked about last week, is that, is that the, the people, though believers in the Lord, had bought into the world's values. They wouldn't say it because they were believers, but, but they were saying by their actions that it, their homes, their families, their security, their comfort were more important to them than, than God, than God's commands, than, than God's purposes for the world, than the mission that God had called them to. You know, remember, remember God's words to Abraham, I am blessing you in order for you to be a blessing to the world. Their priorities got screwed up because they were going along with the crowd and not going along with God. So the barrier to living by faith in Jesus is making good things, even important things, the first things. We deal with that temptation all the time. And it's as we get it wrong, as we, as we and it's so easy to do, it happens almost, it, it, can, it often happens unconsciously. And it takes, often takes a crisis, something like the COVID pandemic, to sort of wake us up and say, well, wait a minute, I may have been, my priorities may have been out of line here. And when that happens, we end up shuffling with the crowd rather than running with the horses. horses. We, we settle for the blessings instead of the blesser. We settle for second best. So that's the first barrier, okay, to living by faith. The second barrier to living by faith in Jesus is what this text that we read today primarily is about, and it's, about, and, and it, and it's discouragement. Discouragement. A huge obstacle to living by faith uh, in Jesus. Now, we know from Haggai's precise time markers. Remember, Haggai is the most precisely timed book in Scripture. We know exactly when these events happened. The whole book happens over a space of a little less than four months. We know as we open up chapter two that they have been, the people have been at the rebuilding process for just a little less than a month. We also know, because we know the exact day, that it's on the 24th day of the seventh month, that they were at the end of, it was, it was the end of the, 
the, the great Jewish festival of the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay. So, so think, just sort of imagine yourself back in that situation. They've, they've, their task is to rebuild the temple. The temple is a pile of ruins. It's laid there about a century. Not one stone upon another, right? Now they've been at work about a month and, and, and during that month there have been Sabbaths. There's also been this ongoing Feast of Tabernacles, which are holy days, right? Which are days you don't work. So it hasn't been a full month of work. And, and I know enough about construction to know that a month in, you're probably not seeing much progress, right? It's like, it, it's like painting. If you, you know, if you really are gonna do a good job painting your house, there's so much of p painting is preparation, right? Preparation, preparation, you don't see any progress. And it's the same with construction. I mean, you're preparing the ground. I mean, just moving these stones out of the way, deciding which stones you're gonna use, which stones you aren't. I mean, this, they, they've, they've invested a whole lot of effort and there, and there isn't a lot at this point to show for it. That's in itself discouraging. You know, for months I look out my window at the counseling center. When are we making progress? And then all of a sudden, boom, it goes, right? But for so long, it doesn't look like much progress is being made. And it gets discouraging. But more than that, it, it, the Feast of Tabernacles was a setup for discouragement because the, at the Feast of Tabernacles, the whole idea was to think back on the glory days. Think back about the Exodus. Think about how God powerfully, miraculously delivered us from slavery in Egypt. Think how he sustained us those 40 years in the wilderness and how he brought us to the promised land. And it was, it was really about this same time of year at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles that the old temple, Solomon's temple, the one that now lies in ruins, was finished. So the Feast of Tabernacles had also become a time not just to look back to the Exodus, but to look back to the sort of the culmination of the Exodus, right? The, the tabernacle which was moving is now permanent. We've, we've, we built and we dedicated this gorgeous temple right in the middle of Jerusalem. That, that's what they've been reflecting on, right? And as they reflect on these things, they, they look out at this no progress scenario this depressing, depressing scene. They see nothing of uh, the glory of the past. They realize that their efforts, even their best efforts, aren't gonna ever even match what they had before. And, to, you know, and you get the idea that there are probably some old people around who remember Solomon's temple, who are telling them, you know, even when you finish this temple, it's not gonna be as good. Right, the good old days were so much better. You know, that's encouraging. You know, the old good old days argument. And then in a way, God sort of adds to it, right? He, he, he questions them uh, in, in chapter two, verse uh, three. You know, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, right? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? 
Notice, God doesn't go on and correct them. He he, he doesn't say, you know, oh, you're wrong to think it's nothing. You know, it's it's not really as small and as as, uh, uh, undistinguished as you think it is. It's, It's really better than you think it is. No, God's a realist. He's underlining, he's, he's affirming their perception. You're right. It's not as good. It's, it really is as nothing. So all their work, right? It's, it seems futile. It seems depressing. It seems like it is, doesn't matter. It seems like it's not going to result in, in, in something that is worth all the effort. And that's discouraging. But that's what God had called them to. And you may know this kind of discouragement, friends, as as followers of Jesus, right? We're we're not building a temple, but, you know, we are uh, building up his church. And you look at his church, you look at your church, and it's full of sinners, including the pastors, who trip up and let you down. You look at your own life and, and, you're, and you're struggling, battling with sins that you thought you had beaten back years ago and they've come roaring back. And all the progress you think you've made in sanctification seems to have rolled back. That's discouraging. You've been living by faith in, in Jesus for years, you've been praying to him for good things and you haven't seen any answers. You haven't seen any payoff. God hasn't delivered on what you've been praying for. I know many of you have adult children who have uh, turned from their faith in Jesus. That's discouraging. I know others of you who've been married for years and you, and you still have the same fights, the same frustrations, the same sense of hopelessness when you wake up in the morning. And discouragement's real. It's, and it's powerful, it's strong. It can really undermine your faith in Jesus. So what's the answer? What will enable you to rise above discouragement? What will enable you to rise above the mold into which the world is now pressing you, right? The mold of materialism, the mold of immediate gratification, the mold of self-promotion, the mode of going along to get along, the mold of living cautiously rather than courageously, the the mold of settling for less than the best that is Jesus? Well, the answer to that question gets us to the second point, right? Those four realities that uh, empower us even when it's hard, even when, it's, when, when the times are discouraging, that empower us to live robust lives of faith in, in Jesus, to live lives that really matter, that have, and it has nothing to do with, right, income or appearance or reputation. But before we get to those four, I want you to see 
three commands that Jesus uh, that, that God issues here. Three commands to the Israelites that are uh, in their discouragement that are still commands to you and to me today. They apply to us as well. You, you can't miss them because God kept repeating them, right? Verse four, be strong. Also verse four, work. And then verse five, fear not. So God comes to discouraged people and says, listen, be strong, don't be afraid, get to work. Now those are good words. They're divine commands after all. But by themselves, friends, I don't know how you hear them, but I hear them as damning. And about as effective as a Bob Newhart counseling session. Some of you here are old enough to remember the Bob Newhart show. Uh, Bob Newhart's great classic comedian. Uh, he, and he, he had a show called The Bob Newhart Show where he played a, a counseling psychologist. It was sort of the Frasier of my, dem, my generation. And uh, even if you aren't old enough to remember this show, you have probably seen one of, its, one of this sitcom's most famous scenes because it still lives on the internet. The last I checked, it had almost six million views. Just, it was just a, a little snippet out of one of the episodes. And it's, it's where a woman comes into to, to Bob Newhart's counseling office uh, and w for counseling. And she says that she's got an irra uh, irra irrational fear of being buried in a box. And, and, uh, and she just can't, they, she obsesses on these thoughts and they, they control her. And the, the, these obsessive thoughts of being buried in a box have resulted in, in a crippling claustrophobia. So she, she can't go into elevators or into uh, small rooms, anything like that. Newhart listens to her uh, and, then, uh, and then gives her his counsel. And... and he says, okay, I have it. I have, I'm, I'm here, here is the answer. It's just two words. She says, do you want me to write them down? He goes, well, if it makes you comfortable, but I think you can probably remember them. Just two words. Here they are. Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> and he keeps repeating it. Stop it! Now, that's a funny scene. Uh, and, it's, and it's funny be, because it, you know, as all the best things that are humorous are, they, they, they riff on reality, right? It, it's funny because in our frustration, we've probably all given counsel like that, right? Parents especially, uh, but pastors too. Just stop it! So it's, it's funny in the sense that, okay, we can relate. I know in my own frustration, maybe I've given counsel like that. And, uh, and it, but it's also funny because we know, even as we give that counsel, or as, as, or as we hear it given, we know it's absolutely useless, 
right? It's, it's, it's worse than useless. I mean, to tell a person who can't stop doing something, right, who can't control these obsessive thoughts and, and to say, just stop it, is actually, is, isn't helping her. It's just making the situation worse, right? Well, what I want you to know, friends, is God isn't a counselor like Bob Newhart, thankfully. He doesn't, he doesn't do that to you. He doesn't tell a weak person to be what he or she is not, strong. Just be strong. God doesn't tell a, a, a person tied up in knots in fear to just don't be afraid. And he doesn't tell a person who, who may not have the ability or the, even the desire to work for the Lord, to just work, get busy, get to work. You know? God never issues commands like that. He's issued those commands. Those commands are important to be strong, to, to, to not be afraid, and to, and to work. But, but those commands aren't naked commands. They don't just fly out of nowhere and put it all on you. Those commands have a context. And those contexts are the four realities that I want to talk to you about. Because the, these four realities that come right out of this text are what empower you to live a life of faith in Jesus, even when the odds seem overwhelming, even when the world says you ought to be discouraged, even when the world says you don't have a prayer. Four realities. And, and, and once you know these realities, the commands begin to make sense. Okay? Four realities, they all begin with P. You got that, interns? Brilliant preaching tactic. <laughs> First, the presence of God. The presence of God. Uh, God tells the Israelites to work, be strong, not be afraid. On what basis? Look at verse 13 of chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. God says what? I am with you. I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. Your ability to be strong, your ability to not be afraid and take courage, your ability to obey the Lord, to get on mission with, with the Lord, even when it's hard, derives from the, the simple reality that you're not alone, but that God himself is with you. And we all know how, how presence has a power in and of itself, right? Just presence. It's... It's why, you know, people come to me and they say, you know, I have to, I'm going to go visit a, someone in the hospital or I'm going to go visit someone at home there and they've, you know, mourning a loved one. What do I say? And, and I say, you know what? You don't really have to say anything. Just your being there is a, it will, will strengthen them, will help them. The, the, the presence has a power. You know, I think about 
situations where, where you might have seen that. I, I, I can remember one both as, as the student and as the parent uh, when, when you know, mom or dad walking next to his daughter or son toward, on, toward a new school. Uh, you know, first day of school, new school, don't know anybody. It's scary. It's scary for that kid going into that school. But having mom or dad sort of walk with you at least, at least far enough to, you know, where the, your parent has time to turn around and not be seen. There's students. But just that gives you power to, you know, make that step to walk into that new school on that day when it's scary. Or, or maybe it's a friend going with you as you know, sort of moral support when you have to go make a difficult confession or, or a difficult apology. For me personally, I, I, I was thinking back, you know, what, where did, what did presence, where, where's, where have I seen the strength of presence? And I, and I have to say, some of you will remember uh, Dr. Dennis Johnson, one of my preaching professors and pastor and elder here for years and years. Uh, and, and I could say it was, it was Dennis being present in the congregation and every time I glanced over at him, giving me an encouraging nod when I was, you know, fearfully trying to preach. Preaching is always fearful. It's even more fearful when you're preaching to your professors. But it was just Dennis showing up and, you know, the encouraging nod. It gives you power. And friends, that's, of course, that's fulfilled in Jesus, isn't it? Think about the last words Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Matthew before his ascension, uh, right? He gives the great commission. Right? Go and, and make disciples, baptize, teach. On what basis? Right? These, these men are afraid. How are we going to do that? Jesus says, because I'm with you. I'm with you even to the end of the age. So that's the first reality. It's the presence uh, of God that enables you and me to live by faith in Jesus. But it's much better than that. Right? The second, context, second reality is the power of God. God is present, but he is present in power. Remember St. Augustine's famous prayer, we, we discussed it a few weeks ago. O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. God doesn't just give you his presence, he gives you his power. God doesn't just issue a command and say, okay, now it's on you. Do it. Just do it. No, God is present there by his spirit and his spirit empowers you to be able to do what God is commanding you to do. You see that in, in verse 14 of chapter one. So God stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. He stirred up the spirit of Joshua. He stirred up the spirit of the people. And what was the result of God working in them? It says they came and they worked. But that, that was a result of the 
Spirit of God not only being present, but working in them. And that's just what we're reading here is Old Testament history that is saying the exact same thing that Paul says in a letter in the New Testament, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? That doesn't mean if, if you want to be on good terms with God, you better get busy. No, it means you're saved. You've been saved by God's amazing grace. Right? Now, work out what that means. Right? Work out the ramifications of, what the, of, of the reality of the working of God's forgiveness and grace in your life. What does that mean for you? That's what he's saying. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, that's a New Testament commentary on what we're seeing here in Haggai. God comes in by his spirit and, and works on your desires and works on your abilities and power and empowers you to do what he's called you to do. Now your head's gonna explode. Just trust me on this. Your head will explode if you try to figure out where your effort and desire start and stop and where God's effort in your life starts and stops. In fact, God's effort in your life never stops. The reality is it's on you, it's on us to live out the implications of the grace we've received and we are to work at that, but we, we don't do it alone and we don't do it unaided. But at the very same time, underneath, in your life, God is right now at work by his Holy Spirit, giving you the desire and the power to hear, understand, and apply his word and do exactly what he wants you to do. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazingly liberating thing. Third reality. So we've seen the presence of God, the power of God, and which allows us to live by faith in Jesus even in discouraging times, and now the past faithfulness of God. See, God's presence and power don't ju aren't just promises. They are promises, but they're much more than that. And they're not, and they're not just isolated events without historical context. These, these are realities, his presence and power, that are supported by a track record of centuries of, of perfect performance. Centuries of faithfulness. Centuries of God being with his people and empowering them to follow him and to transform the world it's there in verse five when God says his presence is with them according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Friends, the God we worship, the God whose love and grace and forgiveness we are caught up with, the God who has called us to this mission of bringing his gospel to the world that will transform the world is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And it's supremely demonstrated right in Jesus.
Jesus, right, on, before he was, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and then took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Jesus went to the cross because of the covenant that his father made with Abraham and Jesus went to the cross to effect the new covenant that God promised to Jeremiah. We serve a covenant-keeping God. So his presence is with you, his power is with you, and, and, he, and, and he's got a faithful track record. You can, look, you can see it in scripture, you can see it in Jesus, Look back at your own life and, see, and, and, and you know there are points in your life where you've seen the faithfulness of God, right? Finally, this is it. Uh, the, the plan of God. Got the presence, the power, the past faithfulness, and finally the plan. And I think this is the ultimate destroyer of discouragement. And it, and it comes from verses six through nine where God does something weird here, right? He's... He's, uh, he's encouraging them to work on this discouraging project. Doesn't look like there's any progress and even when you make progress and even when you finish it, it's not gonna be very impressive. And then starting in verse six, he sort of blows open the scene, right? And he says, I want you to work on this because there's something big gonna happen here. As a result of your work, something big is happening, going to happen here in the future. He's going to shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry lands, and the nations. That seemingly nothing temple they're working on is going to be the focal point of world transformation, of a whole new world order. Not just, I mean, not just transformation of the planet, transformation of the cosmos, right? The heavens are going to shake. Wealth is going to stream in. People are going to stream in. There's going to be glory that far out shines the glory of the old temple. And finally, he says, this is going to be the place where I'm going to give peace It's a fascinating and it must have been a mind-blowing vision, right? They're looking at this pile of rocks going, what, really? But of course, this, what God is doing is bringing this whole thing directly to Jesus, right? Again, it's not about the bricks and the mortar. It's not about the building. It's about Jesus, always has been. And think about, think about Jesus. Think about Christmas. Hasn't been that long since we were at Christmas. Remember when the angels appeared to the shepherds in Bethlehem and, and, and what did they announce? They announced that, that, that God had broken into the world and, and, that, and, and his inbreaking into the world is, is, means what? Peace. Peace. And then eight days later, Mary and Joseph take the eight-day-old Jesus to the temple, and old Simeon is there, and Simeon gra grabs him up and cradles him in his arms and thanks God that he has allowed him to live long enough to see the Messiah. And, and he says, now I know that the glory has returned to the temple. 
Isn't that amazing? Jesus hasn't been around eight days and, 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 and his coming is associated with exactly what Haggai is talking about. Peace and glory. And of course, again, it finds the crescendo at the cross. Right there in Jerusalem, just outside the city walls, not far from the temple. Jesus, by his self-sacrificing death, gave peace. Just like God promised here. Again, Paul says it. A commentary on the Old Testament. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Paul describing Jesus. He says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. Friends, we're in a day where we invest so much time, so much energy, so much focus, so much hope in technology, in medicine, in money, in power, in politics. All good things. And yet the only thing that is ultimately going to transform, permanently transform the world, the only thing that's ultimately going to bring justice to the world and bring peace and reconciliation between people and between people and God is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension and return of the king. That's where our focus, that's where our priorities must be. And I, you know, we can have the same sort of mind-bending experience that the Israelites had, right? We look around. Look at us. We're not that strong. We're not that impressive. We're not that powerful. We're not that influential. We're not, we're not grinding the levers of, of political power, of economic power. But friends, do not be fooled by appearance. God loves delivering huge things in tiny packages. He just does. Because it proves it's him. Right? The, my son turned me on to these crazy videos. Language warning. Our former governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, one, one of his uh, things that he does now in, in retirement, is, is he acquired a 50-ton tank. He owns a tank. And for charity, you can, you, can, you can pay some money to charity and Arnold, you can drive around in Arnold's tank with Arnold and crush things. You watch these YouTube videos, it's come to LA, crush things with my tank. What guy doesn't want to do that? And the YouTubes are awesome, right? The 50 ton tank can take things that you think are strong and immovable and reduce them to rubble. Right, he drives over a limousine, he drives over a taxi cab, he drives over a weight set, says I'm breaking my own record. 
it's silly, but it sort of reminds me of, of it, it's, 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 the re, it's the invisible reality of the church, man. It doesn't look like it. But we're a 50-ton tank. Why fool around with, you know, with lesser things? I mean, God is gonna come roaring back and, and Jesus himself promised that the gates of hell won't even be able to withstand the charge. That's who we serve. That's who we're united to. Isn't that a recipe for non-discouragement? To be encouraged in, this, in, in these discouraging days? I think it is. Amen. Well, let's take, said a lot, let's take two minutes. Reflect on what Haggai has, what God has spoken to you through Haggai. Um, pray, pray that, uh, you know, think about your, reflect on your priorities. If, there's, if, they're, if, you've, if they're out of line, pray to God about them. Repent. Think about ways you've been discouraged and, and how these realities can address your discouragement. Ask God to reveal to you how he wants you to serve him in the building up of his kingdom and his church to bring peace to the world. So let's, for two minutes, let's pray and reflect and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus on our behalf. Lord, we look to you. Help us, Father, to be strong. Help us to not be afraid. And help us to work, to work out the implications of our salvation, to work for your glory, to work to bring the blessings of the gospel to a world that is so desperately hungry for them. Thank you for the forgiveness we have. Thank you for the fresh start that your mercy brings us every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.